Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to the Memorial Day episode of Vet Story. I'm your host, Phil Briggs. And while much of America gets ready for a long weekend, a backyard barbecue, and some time with family and friends, it's also a weekend where we're encouraged to take a moment to pause from our own life and think about those that gave theirs. Now every year in Washington, D.C., tens of thousands of people crowd downtown in the shadow of the Washington Monument on the National Mall for the National Memorial Day concert. This year will be no exception. There's an all-star lineup featuring distinguished guests like General Colin Powell, performances by Academy Award, Golden Globe, and Emmy Award-winning actress Allison Janney, Grammy Award nominee Leona Lewis, Gary Sinise and the Lieutenant Dan Band, and musical tributes from the U.S. Army Herald Trumpets, the U.S. Army Chorus, the U.S. Navy Sea Chanters, the U.S. Air Force Singing Sergeants, and the Armed Forces Color Guard. But on this episode of Vet Story, we wanted to find guests that would capture the real meaning behind Memorial Day. And the organizers of the National Memorial Day concert granted us three interviews. The stories these three men will tell will transport you to battlefields far away and will literally capture the spirit that is Memorial Day. Okay, my name is Joseph L. Anello, Command Sergeant Major, U.S. Army, retired. I live in Castle Rock, Colorado right now. My name is Hiroshi Niamurab. I go by Hershey here in Gallup. That was the nickname of given to me by a school teacher. Joe and Hershey will be honored at the 2018 National Memorial Day concert, but their story began in the spring of 1951. This is an excerpt from the article at pbs.org entitled Korean War, The Bonds of Service. Just before midnight on April 24th, Chinese soldiers stormed the U.S. camp in never-ending waves. Outgunned and outmanned, the U.S. forces fought until they had no choice but to withdraw. Those who could not escape were taken prisoner. Among those American soldiers captured by the Chinese were best friends Hiroshi Hershey Mayamura and Joe Anello. During the attack, Hiroshi heroically fought against the Chinese forces, allowing for his squad to safely withdraw as he and Joe were taken prisoner. Hiroshi suffered painful wounds, but none so bad as Joe. The blast from a grenade had injured his spine, and he was unable to walk. For miles, Hiroshi carried Joe as they marched until the Chinese soldiers forced Hiroshi at gunpoint to leave Joe on the side of the road to die. And there, they said what they thought was their final goodbye. Uh, that night, uh, Hershey's squad and my squad were assigned to uh, Fox Company of the... Uh, 2nd Battalion, 7th Regiment. <clears throat> Before we got dug in, 
you know, the, the infantrymen, infantrymen uh, machine guns are placed uh, between them and in the best uh, uh, area on site for it to give us defensive fire to protect the infantrymen around us. Well, as we were getting ready to dig in, a uh, battalion intelligence officer, I use that intelligence in quotes, <laughs> came, <laughs> right. came, came down and told the Fox Company commander that the uh, British Marines, which to our west are about two miles right on the Injun River, were taking a beating, and they were, uh, Phil. So they're going to take all of Fox Company out to go help the British Marines. But they were leaving our guns in place. So we had Hershey Squad, my squad, 22 people scattered uh, for about 300 yards with no protection in between us. All the riflemen were gone. But they assured us that there was no, no activity to our immediate front. So, you know, we were we were in good shape. Uh, however, they failed to inform the Chinese of this because uh, that night about 10 o'clock, all along this imaginary line I told you about, yeah. they had six Chinese divisions attacked uh, our fronts. And, of course, we with 22 people, we were immediately, you know, engulfed. Uh, my squad was hit first. I was on just a little lower level than Hershey was. He was a little higher on my on my left flank, and we were immediately you know surrounded. It was kind of chaotic, uh, uh, a lot of fighting, a lot of hand to hand type activity, and I was going back to my uh, section leader's foxhole to try to get some flares coming in because it was kind of dark. You know, we wanted to have more light, and about that time. I got shot in the back of my legs. As I was going down, I got hit by a hand grenade, and that was essentially the end of the war for me. I just kind of went out, nice, quiet, warm feeling. And I woke up the next morning being prodded by a bayonet from a Chinese soldier, and he had asked me in sign language, to get up, and I couldn't move. So two Chinese soldiers grabbed one arm apiece, and they dragged me off this mountain. They had the worst, the roughest ride I ever had in my life. I bet. But anyway, I, I got down to a schoolyard, I believe it was, uh, and fortunately for me, and uh, thank God, my friend Hershey, he was uh, slightly wounded, but he took care of my wounds as best he could with you know, the, the equipment we had. We had the little sulfur packs and, you know, and the uh, and the bandages and all that. And he, he tried to stench the flow of blood, and he did a good job, because I, I, I was breathing pretty badly. Uh, in any event, about uh, an hour later, we had a Chinese officer came into the courtyard, got up in a little box, and he spoke in a very Oxford English accent, uh, telling us that we would be well treated, uh, wounds would be taken care of, we would be fed, and uh, our families would be notified uh, through our, our division that we were prisoners of war. Well, two seconds after he left, they stole my ring, my watch, and my other personal items. <laughs> and not only me, but everybody else. <clears throat> but he had also informed us the next morning we were going to go on a forced march for about 100 miles 
to a prison war camp. Well, that was a problem for me because I couldn't walk. The next morning we got up, Hershey, uh, I put all my weight on Hershey, and I, I, my, my left side was okay, but my right side was completely immobile. Anyway, Hershey carried me this way for about 10 miles, kind of dragging me, if you will. God bless. Yeah. Uh, he'll dispute the, the uh, distance we have over the last 68 years. <laughs> so we've agreed that it was a long way. <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah. Now the interesting part comes. Well, you know, when I was told by an interpreter to leave him because we were holding up the column, I hesitated, but uh, Josie insisted I leave him, so I had left him at uh, the roadside there, never expected to see him again, because I thought for sure once I left him, they would shoot him. So I just went on, and I often wondered what happened afterward. How I made it, I'll never know, but uh, we fought, when we finally did reach our destination, it was no better than the conditions, the food, the medical attention was the same. No medical attention. The food was non-existent, really, because we weren't getting that much, except for a cup of soybean milk in the morning, and then a watered vegetable with maybe a vegetable during the day, and that was it. And that went on for a year, over a year, and the thing is, they would not release the names of us that were captured. So one year, my wife didn't know whether I was alive or not, because the War Department declared me as missing. I laid there for about a day and a half under this imaginary tree. <laughs> and Another Chinese unit came by that was uh, being pushed back by our forces that was recapturing the areas that we had lost. And uh, they they saw me and they prodded me with a bayonet, you know, to see if I was alive. And unfortunately, at that time for them, I was. They put me on a uh, a buggy with big bicycle wheels on it. And they took me up north of about, uh, oh, I'd say 40 kilometers, 50 kilometers. And that's about right where the DMZ is right now right on the engine river. Uh, anyway, uh, I, I was there with four other people, and uh, four Americans and one Turkish soldier, all severely wounded. In fact, uh, the Americans were uh, more severely wounded than I was. Also, they brought in a, a pilot that it had shot down, and uh, his right hand was burned out uh, to the bone. There was no hardly any meat on it. He tried to level off his aircraft. Uh, he got shot in a belly tank, and the flames were coming up there and burned off his hand. Oh. But fortunately for us, they, he was the only one that could walk. Now, ironically, we were in a forward Chinese medical unit, the people that were responsible for us. But they refused to treat our wounds. They wouldn't feed us. They were just warehousing us until we died, Phil. But they did allow this pilot to walk around the area and barter with the local uh, farmers 
for food and whatever he could get from them. They didn't have much themselves. Anyway, we had one fellow that was actually the least wounded of us all. He had a, a clean bullet hole through his uh, ankle. But uh, it got infected, and uh, he developed gangrene. Uh, we pleaded with the Chinese, you know, to to do something for him, but they refused. In fact, we went so far as to ask them to give us uh, uh, surgical or sharp instruments, and we were going to attempt to amputate his leg. Now, we didn't know anything about, you know, that, but we would probably end up killing him, but uh, we just couldn't stand to see him laying there dying. And he did die uh, about three days later. And uh, this was when we were in captivity then about three weeks, three and a half weeks. And the pilot and I, I uh, was able to crawl around, uh, move the body out of this. Uh, we were in a Korean kitchen. We moved the body out of a Korean kitchen. And about five yards away, uh, we put uh, him in a what they call a kimchi hole. I don't know if you know what that is, Phil. It's an area where the... Korean store that went to kimchi. Oh, okay. Is, uh, anyway, and it had a, a cover on it made out of wood and, and vines and all that stuff there. And getting back to the the kitchen we were in, it was about five by eight. And the reason we were in the kitchen because they had horses and mules in the house. And the reason for that is so the aircraft wouldn't see them when they flew over. But the horses were kicking down the plaster walls they were crapping all over us, and that brought the flies, and the flies, brought, of course, brought the maggots. Mm -hmm. And this was kind of disgusting at the time, uh, but we found out later that the maggots uh, probably saved our lives there because they ate all of the dead flesh. So it was good to know after. I didn't know it at the time. Anyway, I talked to the pilot. We had two guys there that probably wouldn't have lasted more than two or three weeks. I told him we had to do something. We just can't sit around, you know, and watch everybody die. And he agreed. So we formulated a plan, and we talked to the remaining troops there and told them what we wanted to do. And they all agreed 100%. Because the reason we talked to them is we didn't know what the Chinese would do if they found one of us missing. Anyway, that night we crawled up to the uh, hillside uh, with some rice straw and we built a POW sign with an arrow pointing down to the house. And we came back, and the following day, uh, toward the end of the evening, uh, he went down to the Injun River, uh, ostensibly to get water for us, and uh, he kept on going. And before he left, he told me, Joe, if you don't get help within three days, I want you to try to get down there somehow. I told him I could swim like a fish. Born and raised in Boston at the the corner of the Charles River and the Atlantic Ocean. And I've been swimming since I was six years old. But he thought he was stronger than I, and he was going to go first. Anyway, he left and swam down the Indian River for about two days. Mike made contact with a, a Korean organization, and they turned him over to the 1st Cavalry Division. And he told the 1st Cavalry Division, commander where we were and he gave him the approximate coordinates and so forth anyway that's true to what he said about three days later in the morning a flight of corsairs from the aircraft carriers off the coast came in and just devastated the hills around uh, our uh, house 
because the Chinese were in, uh, in positions around there. And about uh, an hour later, the five tanks from the 1st Cavalry Division, the 5th Cavalry Regiment, came in, surrounded our house, put us on top of the tanks on the leeward side, backed off about 100 yards, and it turned around and we headed home, and we were free. Uh, the happiest day of my life. Of the peace talks, uh, they, that went on for over two years. And uh, finally, on the uh, last month of the 53 in August, last week of August, we were told to um, gather in an area, and then when you hear your name be called, you'll be going home within a week. So uh, as the times went by, we there was about 25 or so of us left, and we finally got our call to go back. Uh, he released in August 20, 1953. The phone calls I shared with both of those gentlemen were easily 45 minutes long, and I had to condense it down a little bit to get it to fit within this podcast. But what I took away from my time with each of them was an incredible feeling, a feeling that you can survive and you can will yourself to live through anything. They saw firsthand the cost of war. They survived POW camps and made it safely back to the good old USA. But there's one part of the story that still remains, how they finally found each other again. I had orders to go to California uh, to attend the Army Language School. I was waiting for a job to open up at the Wingate Ordnance Depot. Anyway, I, I jumped in my car and I headed down to Gallup on my way to San Francisco, not, not San Francisco, Monterey. And I walked in and I found out what Hershey was working. I walked in the store. Joe came in, walked through the door, and I couldn't believe what I saw him, that, <laughs> that he was alive. He looked at me, he turned white as a sheet. He said, my God, you're dead. I said, no, no, I'm not, Hershey. I assured him I was still alive. I don't remember saying that, but um, I just couldn't believe what I was saying. Anyway, that's how I found out he was alive, and he found out I was alive. And him, his wife, and his family, and my wife have been friends now for, well, 68 years. One of the other honored guests of the National Memorial Day concert is a Marine whose story begins during some of the darkest times of the Vietnam War. William B. Ryder, uh, founder of uh, American Combat Veterans of War, a 501c3 nonprofit. I enlisted in the Marine Corps in January 1965 and separated from the United States Marine Corps December 31st, 1968 from the Bethesda Naval Hospital. And to that, I will give you the oorah. Although I'm, uh, <laughs> Thanks, buddy. I'm Navy, but we're the same department. And, uh, hey, you guys helped us. <laughs> I actually lost three corpsmen in like 15 minutes. Oh, God bless. Yeah, yeah they were great. And it is, it is because of your rich experience and because of the things you've managed to live through by divine providence, I might add, really underscore the importance of Memorial Day. But if I could, Bill, can, can I read in a little bit from your bio and just sure. have you pick Absolutely. up kind of where I leave off? But in 1968, um, 
there was the pause in the Vietnam War uh, to observe the Lunar New Year, or Tet. And in spite of that agreement, the North Vietnamese Army and the Viet Cong troops launched a surprise full-scale attack on cities across South Vietnam. And uh, one of the targets, of course, is the legendary Khe San in the Quang Tri province, where yeah. 40,000 enemy troops faced 2,500 Marines. And you were part of a very famous division in military history, probably one of the most uh, renowned divisions that you know we speak of when we talk about Memorial Day. But uh, among those fighting at Quezon was the 1st Battalion, 9th Marines, also referred to as the Walking Dead, because of the highest casualty rate in Marine Corps history. Share with me just a little something, anything you could, about your experience there and kind of how it shaped the significance of Memorial Day to you. Yeah, sure. Uh, That's a good question and one that sometimes is a little hard to answer, but uh, Memorial Day is uh, every day for me. And I'll tell you why. So many young men, some very promising young men lost their lives on the battlefield, on the mountains, in the valleys, in the triple canopy, at Quezon, airstrip, and it's always been my perspective that they should be remembered. We should talk about who they were and 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 describe how and willing they were to lay their life down for their fellow combat brother. There was some kind of mystique about that. They wouldn't talk about what happened. Uh, and I think in, in the parlance of society, it was a club, so to speak. Mm-hmm. A very visceral, traumatic club. And they didn't talk about it. Sometimes they cried. Mm-hmm. It's because of their brothers that were left lying on the battlefield. Of the nearly 3,000 Marines who served with the 1-9 in Vietnam, 25% would be killed in action. On one particular day, we lost 45 to 50 killed on a hill and over 100 and 50 wounded. That was on April the 16th, which was on a what we call, referred to as a hill with no name, right outside of uh, the Quezon airstrip. Now, it's understandable that surviving those situations will leave an indelible mark on you, visible or invisible. And they were afraid, actually, in those days to talk to combat veterans because we were, quote-unquote, killers. And you don't want to set them off. And that's what we really in the uh, uh, the 70s and 80s and 90s had to deal with. So as Bill went down the road of his own healing process to recover from the often misunderstood diagnosis of PTSD, he began to understand the nature of healing. It's when you don't talk about your trauma. It's when you stuff it that you're going to have problems because early on we discovered that the ones who had severe post-traumatic stress, uh, and it was called something different in those days, were the World War II and Korean War guys. They were a mess and 
quite frankly, some of them are still a mess. Uh, it's, it's what you have to talk about and uh, certainly uh, talk about with somebody who has uh, been there and done that and, and can relate. And relate is exactly what Bill Ryder did. Inspired by his journey, he founded the American Combat Veterans of War, a nonprofit with the mission to help those veterans who have experienced the same trauma of war he has. Well, we, we have several programs. Uh, one of them is, uh, as I said, the Safe Warrior Outreach, in which we have uh, meetings every Tuesday at our Carlsbad office. And uh, pizza is served, and uh, serenity is to be given. And um, we also uh, help with a young Marine uh, that we mentored at some point and he works for challenged athletes and also has a program with the Balboa Naval Hospital which is the uh, surf clinic where uh, Marines and veterans who have lost their limbs uh, are encouraged to come and get on a surfboard and do things that they thought they could never do if they had lost a leg or an arm or both and it's quite quite uplifting, quite uh, uh, something that really moves your heart and wants to be, want to be part of. We also go into the uh, Vista Detention Center, and I don't know whether you know this or not, but the United States has a lot of veterans warehoused in, in jail mm-hmm. and in prison, and for various reasons. But in Vista, there is two incarcerated veteran mods, exclusively veterans, and they uh, need to be re-energized. They need to be rebooted. And, and we go in and tell them that at the moment they're proudest of when they held their hand up to s- and swear to uphold the Constitution of the United States, that that can be theirs again. And we mentor them, and we do everything we can. And there, I, I couldn't possibly tell you everything we did for them, but uh, we encourage them to become uh, part of the uh, societal conversation again, to care about who they are. And we have lowered the recidivism rate uh, dramatically from around 75% to below 10%. That's astonishing. That's the answer, because most of them are in there uh, for drinking and DUIs and drugs and domestic violence, which is a the the uh, uh, result of being traumatized in in the in the service. Don't they deserve what is a major tenet of most religions, and that's redemption? I think so. We'd like to thank all of our guests, Joe Anello, Hiroshi, Hershey, Miyamura, and Bill Ryder. Their stories help us remember the sacrifices made for our freedoms today. I'm Phil Briggs, and I'll talk to you again with more great stories from the battlefield to the barstool on the next episode of Vet Story.
We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 